Turn with me to uh, Joshua chapter 3. So far, we've seen preparation uh, to enter the land, but they've got a few obstacles, at least on the physical side. But God's going to be very easily dealing with all of those obstacles. And he's going to prove himself faithful to the people and also to Joshua. Remember, he had told Joshua to be courageous over and over again. And uh, not to worry, not to fear. That's certainly a message to all of us uh, as we uh, seek to serve our Lord. Uh, We've got things to do in this world. And that's what crossing the Jordan really is all about. You know, a lot of times over the years, the church has sort of misrepresented the crossing of the Jordan and entering into the land of Canaan as a reference to death and then eternal life in heaven. I want to remind us, and we'll see that more and more as we proceed in this great book, the land of Canaan isn't a type of heaven. It's a type of experience of the Christian as he walks in this world during our lifetime. There's death. There are battles. There are issues. There are difficulties. There are challenges. But in this book, we see how God intends for his children to deal with all of that in our life that we have here in the present. So it really is a picture of of the life that we live as believers. And the crossing of the Jordan really is a picture of Christ going before us and dying in the way that he had to die to allow us to enter into this relationship that we have as we walk in this life, in this region that we are now living and dealing with the various things that we have to deal with. But he went before us and he's represented in a very wonderful way and we'll look at that briefly here tonight in chapter 3 where we'll be spending a good portion of our time and perhaps a little bit of chapter 4 as well. But keep in mind that the people had been in Egypt in slavery for many, many years. Abraham, back over 400 years prior to this, had been promised that his descendants would occupy this land, that this land known as the land of Canaan, we call Israel today, at least the part of Canaan that we do call Israel, is indeed the land of Israel. It's their nation. It's their land. If you give it to them. He promised Abraham that they would have it, and he indeed fulfilled that promise. But he told Abraham that it would be about 400 years before that promise would be fulfilled. And that's precisely when Moses came along and the people were in slavery, uh, in bondage in Egypt, and they were sent a deliverer. The deliverer was Moses. And by his hand, they were set free from the bondage. And that is a type of salvation, obviously, saved, saved from the slavery. And we, as as a picture of us being saved out of the bondage of the sin that held us captive. So that is a wonderful picture, and we see those pictures throughout the Old Testament 
And as we continue to look through the Word of God, even in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we see pictures of our salvation, our uh, journeyings through this life, and the things that God expects of us as a result of our having made a commitment to Him. But none of that which we've talked about is because of anything we have done. They were brought out of slavery in Egypt by God's grace, not because of what they had become. They were slaves. They were no special people. Uh, God just chose them. It was His choice, not theirs. He brought them out. He delivered them. And He did that for us as well. He gave them the law at Mount Sinai. He told them that they must obey all of the commands that He gives them. And they said, all that God tells you, Moses, we will do. And so they agreed to the command covenant that was established at Sinai. It was a covenant that was ratified by Moses as the one who mediated between God and man. But it was an obligatory covenant. A covenant that they had to obey laws that God had given in order for them to obtain that salvation. For us, we have a different arrangement. You all know that. And that's what stands out in our day as the most wonderful act of God's grace and mercy, that He would visit His people and all the nations with a new covenant that would be based upon what He has done, not upon what we have done. That covenant, by the way, was spoken of by an Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. And that covenant was also spoken of by Ezekiel. And it was accomplished by God in the time that he had appointed when Jesus came to this earth the first time to make that covenant available to all. And that covenant was ratified not by the crossing of the Red Sea, but by Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins. And again, that is by type or picture revealed to us here in this great chapter 3 of the book of Joshua. So read with me, beginning with verse 1, chapter 3 of the book of Joshua, where we're told, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove, which is also known as Shittim, and came to the Jordan, the river Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. Now keep in mind, up until this point, they had been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. That first generation, almost all of them have passed away. When they entered that area just south of the land of Canaan, when they could have entered the land of Canaan, over 40 years before this event, they rejected God's promise. They were disobedient, they were rebellious, and they were unbelieving people. And as a result of that, that entire first generation, from the age of 20 up until however old they may have been, passed away in the wilderness. That means that those people who entered into the land of Canaan, all of them were the second generation, with the exception of those from the first generation who were 20 years or younger when they entered the 
wilderness and the two older men, Joshua and Caleb. Those are the only ones from the first generation that entered in. So the vast majority of people are the second generation. Now, during that latter 40 years in the wilderness that they were wandering all of that time, the Lord allowed them to encamp in the wilderness from time to time, and then he would choose to move. And it was his choosing, not theirs, that they were going to go to a different location within that wilderness area. And he revealed to them that it was time to move by restoring that pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And it is that pillar that led them in the wilderness. And when they came to settle at one particular place after another, then the pillar was no longer visible for that season where they were resting at every single one of those locations. But every time they moved, God manifest himself in that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to lead them along. It was always that which they followed. Now we're going to see that the pillar is not going to lead them for the very first time in all of their wilderness journeys. That's all they knew. Remember, they were also being fed manna daily, except for one day out of the week. That was, that was always the case for those 40 years in the wilderness, and it's going to come to an end when they cross over the River Jordan. Now, the question remains for them, I think, by now, they're told... We're going to cross over the Jordan. We're going to enter the land. But none of them knew how that was going to happen. It was kind of an issue, I believe, for the majority of them who would perhaps have wondered, what are we going to do? Do we build boats, rafts? How is it going to happen? The River Jordan was at its flood stage. Now, in that day, there was no irrigation system. There was no one pulling water out of the river for irrigation. There were no dams being built. The water just simply flowed down from the Sea of Galilee. The source of the water was the mountains around Mount Hermon and below that mountain where the water runoff from the mountains would fill the lake and then enter into the Jordan River and rush down through the entire distance of about 80 miles from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, and it would empty into the Dead Sea. But it would be a very, very strong river and very large river because of the flooding that would take place in the spring. And this particular event that we're looking at here, it occurred in the springtime. We'll see that later on in our study uh, tonight or maybe next week, if the Lord willing. But the waters were overflowing their banks, which was very, very typical during the springtime. Some estimate that the width of the river during that flood stage in that day could have been a quarter to a half a mile in width. Now, that's a pretty large body of water to have uh, over a million and a half to two million people cross over. Looking on the other side of the river, we have the city of Jericho a big city. It's a walled city. A very, very strongly fortified city of the Canaanites. They could see the Jordan River. And I'm sure they could see the encampment of the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan River. And remember, 
Rahab had told the, sp the spies that there was great fear in the land because they knew about the God of Israel, what he had done for them as they entered into the wilderness coming out of Egypt 40 years prior to that. They knew what the people of Israel had done in conquering the great kings of the northern Jordan area uh, that we discussed last week, Oz and, and uh, the other king that was a very strong and powerful king in that day. They knew that the Israelites were going to be coming into the land. They were aware of the promises of God to Abraham. And Rahab had told the spies that the whole nation was fearful of them. However, in Jericho, I wonder if perhaps they felt themselves to be fairly safe from any potential invasion because the Jordan was over flooding its banks and it was a very, very difficult river to cross for just a few people, let alone an entire nation to cross. And so they probably thought themselves fairly safe. And of course they had their walls around the city. It was a double wall, a very, very strong city fortification. They thought perhaps there was no real immediate danger, although they were still fearful of the nation of Israel. They knew that their God could do many miraculous things. They weren't really sure when or how any of that could happen. But neither were the Israelites. They didn't have any idea either. But now we see the preparation is now progressing and it's only three days away. They're going to cross the Jordan. How that's going to happen has not yet been revealed. But God is in control. And he has already spoken apparently to Joshua with some detail, but not all the details. The details come later. The command comes now. And the command is, tell the people to get ready. We're crossing over in three days. Verse 2 says, So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure, which is about 3,000 feet, a little over half a mile. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. That's the truth. So what God is telling the people here is prepare yourselves for this wonderful experience that God is going to make sure that you will have as an experience that will never be forgotten. It will be written about, recorded, and it will be remembered by the generations that follow. This is what the Lord our God has done for our people. Back then, it stands as a memorial for the presence of the Lord among his people. And it still, today, says the same thing to us as we read these wonderful words of deliverance and provision by the Lord God Almighty for his people. You have not gone this way before, but don't fear. God is on your side. 
He says in verse 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Sanctify yourselves. You know the word sanctify means separate yourselves. It can also be translated consecrate. When we consecrate or sanctify ourselves, we are making ourselves to be set apart. Holy is another way of looking at that word sanctification. Holiness unto the Lord. When we're sanctified, we are set apart. We're a separate people. We're a peculiar people. And that is a truth for us as believers in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter, at least in the old King James Version, spoke to believers when he wrote that passage. That's a great passage to look into in First Peter where he says, We are a peculiar people, a royal nation, a holy priesthood. Those are the truths that we have as believers in Jesus Christ because we have been set apart. We have been made holy by the Lord's grace and mercy, not because of anything that we have done. We have His righteousness. That's all that we can depend on, and that certainly is enough. They were told, sanctify yourselves. Now, Moses in the wilderness had spent many, many years giving them the law and talking about how it was that they were to sanctify themselves. And it involved offering up sacrifices. It involved kosher regulations, laws that were necessary for them to obey for cleanliness, for uh, consumption of foods, for just simply serving the Lord and being able to enter into His presence because of all of the things that they were required, it was a process. It was hard. It was very, very detailed instruction that they needed to follow in order to enter into the Lord's presence, to be totally sanctified by the things that they did in order to enter into God's presence. We have a different means of entering into God's presence, thankfully, not by the law, but by the Holy Spirit, knowing that because we have received the salvation that has been offered to us by the Lord, we have been born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, and we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. So we, when we come to the Lord, can only do that because He sees Christ in us. The righteousness of Jesus is what makes it possible. We are sanctified. They were told to make themselves sanctified. No uh, evil things had, could be allowed in the camp. No things that were uh, outside of what they were told, instructed to do, could be allowed in that particular day. If they did, then they would be failing to sanctify themselves. So they needed to be obedient to the Lord in this. And note that the ark is going to go ahead of them instead, again, of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But the ark of the covenant, that ark of the covenant is going to be what leads them to the Jordan. And the ark of the covenant is a picture of Jesus Christ. Remember, the ark of the covenant was, the box itself was a gold box not very large, about three feet by two feet in size. It was carried by the priests 
with poles that they stuck through the lid of the ark and they carried it by the poles and never ever touched the ark. And the ark was completely covered by the uh, animal skins that were created for that purpose. And whenever they traveled, the ark would be taken out of the holy place by the high priest covering the uh, top of that ark upon that lid stood two angelic beings with their wings touching, facing one another, and that was what was known as the mercy seat. That was what was placed upon the ark. And that mercy seat is a picture of the salvation, the uh, fact that Jesus is our atonement. And we see Christ in that mercy seat. In fact, Paul uses a Greek word, propitiation, which really is literally translated mercy seat. And he says that Jesus is our propitiation for our sins, our mercy seat for our sins. So that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat is indeed a type of Jesus Christ. And it's now going before them, leading the way. And the Levites are instructed to carry the Ark up to the river bank, but go no further. The people had to keep themselves separate from the ark by a distance of about a half a mile. And it's likely because of the fact that if they were that distance from the ark, they could more easily, all of them as a people, remember how large a group of people they are, could actually see the ark as it moves forward into the Jordan River. But they're not told yet to go into the Jordan. They could not tread water. That wasn't the plan. But they didn't know that. They were just told to go to the edge of the water and stay in there, and the people would be made ready by sanctifying themselves. That's all they knew. Now, it tells us in verse 6, Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Remember, the Ark was in the center of the camp. So he's telling them, go through the camp and begin the process. Go forward now toward the Jordan before the people. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. What a wonderful word of promise that was to this man, Joshua. He was told by the Lord, everybody saw that Moses was anointed by God, ordained by God to lead the people. Now the people are going to see without doubt that you, Joshua, are the one who has been chosen to take his place. Of course, they all knew that Moses had died several days prior to this. Now they know Joshua is indeed God's choice to lead them into the land. And he gives this promise to Joshua, again, to encourage Joshua. You know, leaders need encouragement. And especially if you're taking over for somebody else, it's certainly nice to know that God is with you. And here it is, the promise of God to Joshua. Yes, Joshua, I am indeed with you. He goes on to say in verse 8, You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come 
to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So now he told the priests, You go, bring the ark, and stand in the edge of the water. Get your feet wet, basically. That's all they had to do. That's all they were told. Stand. They have no idea what is going to happen next, at least not yet. I find that very, very amazing that God does that throughout the whole book of the Bible, over and over again. He gives instruction, but it's limited instruction. And it's required of that individual or that group of people to do what he says up to what they know he has spoken. That is acting by faith. That is saying, I will do what you have told me, even though I don't know what goes on after that. God does that still, I believe, today. He did it with Abraham. We talked about that last Sunday. He did it with uh, Philip in, in uh, Samaria when he told him to go down to the Negev. He does it with his people throughout the ages. Over and over and over again, you can see this simple truth. God begins to tell what he wants you to do, but doesn't always give the details about what's ultimately going to have to happen. He just invites us to trust him and to do what we ask, or what he asks us to do. And then when we do that, he delivers more information about what takes place next. That's wonderful that our God handles all of us in much that same way, even today. I'm grateful for a God who gives us that kind of leading that requires faith to continue to wait upon him for the next step. And I love the scripture, and I've repeated it often, Proverbs 16:9, And it tells us, man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. I'm convinced that's still very much the truth. It was true then. He told the Levites, this is what you're to do. Go to the water, the edge of the great river that's overflowing its banks, and stand just in the very shallows of the river as it's flowing by. And it's a torrent. It's a strong river going through that area in its flood stage. But they're only to stand on the river's edge. And then again, he tells the people, we're about to enter the land. Be prepared. All of these people groups that he mentioned, they were the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They will no longer exist as people groups after Israel finally takes the land. It's going to take a long, long time. But don't... We don't forget, the land was given to the nation of Israel. It does not belong to those Canaanites, because they are no more. You will not find any Hittites, or Hivites, or Perizzites, or Jebusites. You will not find any of the Amorites listed here. Any of the other Canaanite people groups that were in the land in that day no longer exist. Now, they did not obey the Lord completely, when they took the land. But they did indeed take the land. 
but allowing some of those people groups to remain instead of being totally obedient to what God will be commanding them to destroy that entire nation because of their sin. Judgment was to have been given against them. They didn't really fulfill all of what God had intended for them to do. However, they did take the land. It was not easy. There was a lot of work that had to be done. And we'll see that throughout the remainder of the book of Joshua. But here, we're about ready to cross over the Jordan. Yet, we still don't know quite how that's going to happen. Well, of course, we do, because we've read the text. They did not read this chapter. They didn't have it available. They don't know what's happening next. But Joshua now reveals it to them. He says in verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. That's Jesus crossing over before you into the Jordan. He's going to cross into that place that you and I don't have to do because he's going to go into the water. It's a representing the death. But by the time the people get there, it's not going to be quite as difficult as they might have thought. He says, Now therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, verse 12. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Now again, here he's telling us that he's telling them to take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and they're going to be used in a very, very particular way, as we'll see in chapter 4. But it says that they are now going to see a miracle, much like the miracle at the Red Sea. And again, he gives them this information here before they're ready to start, saying in verse 13, the Jordan River waters shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream will be standing as a heap, just like the Red Sea did in their first years of the wilderness journeyings. Only a handful, comparatively, of the people had seen that. Remember, the entire first generation had passed away except for those who were 20 years or less, and Joshua and Caleb. They saw the Red Sea parted, and they told their children, and perhaps their grandchildren while they were in the wilderness. This is what the Lord did for us. Now they're ready to see that kind of a miracle again. This event is equal to, if not greater than, the miracle of the Red Sea crossing. I say that because the Jordan River is a flowing river. The Red Sea is stationary. Now, the God of Israel can do anything he chooses. In both cases, he made the water stand up as a heap. In the case of the Red Sea, he just split the waters and there were two walls of water standing on either side of the pathway that God had made for the people to cross over the Red Sea on dry 
ground. But the water stood still, congealed into a kind of a wall of water. However he does that, it's up to him to determine how it's done. But here in the Jordan River, it's not standing water, it's very quickly flowing water, and it's coming down from the mountains north of the Sea of Galilee and flowing down at a very, very high density or, or uh, speed, rather, into the, the Dead Sea. And for the waters to stop, there had to have been some kind of spiritual dam that God had used. We're not told exactly how he does this. But it says some distance away, upstream, the waters will stop from being able to flow. So picture, if you will, a wall of water, as he says here, it shall stand up as a heap. Somehow, again, God miraculously building some spiritual damming mechanism that keeps the water from being able to continue to flow, and so that the water that had already flowed will soon pass by the people near the place where they are, and not only will the waters continue to flow and then empty out that entire river basin, but they also will pass over that on dry ground as well, just like they did over the Red Sea. It says again, The water shall cut, be cut off upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. And verse 14 continues and says, So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. We don't know exactly where the city that is referenced here, Adam, or the city Zeratan, are located. Many believe that it was perhaps as much as 15 or 20 miles north of Jericho, where they are. So it's a great distance, but apparently it could be seen that the wall of water was holding the flow of the river completely so that they could cross over. Now you would think it would be pretty muddy crossing over a riverbed. Or at least very difficult for them to have animals and carts and women and children, all of them able to cross over. Picture the amount of people that were involved in this miracle and, and realize how important it was for them to know that God was doing this for them and that they could trust him to make it so that they could indeed cross over without any harm to them. That took a great deal of faith. But we have the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, has gone before them, has entered the waters of the Jordan, and the miracle has begun. The water has congealed, and now they're ready to cross over. Verse 17 says, Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, 
and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Picture that, if you will. It's a beautiful sight that they must have had before them. The wall of water off in the distance, dry ground instead of mud to cross over to the other side. God has done another great miracle of miracles. There's only one other time in the Word of God where we have the splitting of waters. And that is in Elijah's day. You may remember that when Elijah was ready to be taken up into glory by that wonderful experience that only he and Enoch had experienced until the New Testament, he and his servant Elisha were standing by the river and Elijah was very much aware that he was going to have to cross the river and he would be taken up. And Elisha said, I want to go with you. But Elijah said, no, you can't go with me unless the Lord allows it. And he said, what would you want if God allows it as proof that it is his will? And Elisha said, give me a double portion of your anointing, your mantle. Well, God did that. But he took his mantle or his uh, material that he had around his neck, that's called a mantle, a wrap around his neck. He took it off and he took it and he slung it onto the ground. And when he did so, the waters parted. And he gave the mantle to Elisha and he crossed over on dry ground. And he was caught up into glory. That is an, a remarkable thing indeed. But that's the only other time that I'm aware of that God did such a miracle as this. On a much smaller scale. It was only one person who crossed over. But nonetheless, God does that when he wants to do that. And he did it now, in this case, for the second time. They crossed on dry land, just as the first generation did over the Red Sea. They crossed over. They're on the other side. They're officially in the land of Canaan. They've succeeded in receiving the promise that God had given to Abraham. They're there in the land, but they don't have possession yet of the land. It's not theirs yet. They've got to fight for it. They've got to do a lot of things that are required by the Lord in order to occupy the land and make it fully theirs. Well, before they begin that process, there's still a lot of things that have to be done. And so we're going to continue briefly through a portion of chapter 4, because it really is related to the crossing of the Jordan. Read with me chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, and the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Now, these are the twelve men that we were told that he appointed back in chapter 3 in verse 12. Now he's sharing again that he has chosen these twelve and they have a task. This is their task. They're to take twelve stones from the Jordan, the riverbed, carry them with them over to the eastern side and they're to 
put those stones on the land in a memorial altar, if you will, or a pile of stones that would represent the fact that they are now in the land where they were to lodge that night. Verse 4 says, Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Now cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? So they're a memorial. They will be there so that the next generation and generations that follow, as long as those stones remained, would be able to tell their children what had taken place right there. Those stones don't happen to be there today. We're confident of that. However, what he tells us next, I wonder. Read on in verse 7. It says, Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. I wonder, are they still there to this day? The waters came back, overflowed that area that had been dry for them to cross over. Now it was back to a normal flow of water. But those 12 stones were in the middle of that Jordan River. And I believe that they probably are still there, even now. Nobody's found them as far as I know. I'm not sure that anybody has even tried to find them. But they were put there for a reason. I wonder if perhaps the Lord will dry up the Jordan River one more time. Maybe. And if he does, then those stones will be revealed. As a reminder, God was here. Well, let's finish with verse 12, 11. Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. None were left behind. The ark was standing in the middle of the Jordan River until all the people had safely crossed over, until the memorials had been constructed both on the eastern shore and in the middle of the Jordan. And then the priest carried the ark out of that riverbed onto dry land and the waters came back. What an amazing story. And there's more that God is going to do. But he's going to expect some things of them as well. And we'll be looking at some of that in the chapters ahead. So, remember, Christ is our mercy seat. He went before them into the middle of the Jordan. He did for them what we or they could not do for ourselves. That's how graceful and merciful our God is. Even today, we can see by reading these words and knowing what the Word of God says throughout his word, that he is faithful to do what he has promised. So, keep that in mind as you continue to serve him, my friends.